Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Monday, September 11th, and it is 21, well, no, 22 now, years since the tragedy of 9-11, a period in history that stands out and was a period in which we must always remember that terrorism is real and the threats against the West and civilization are very real. And I, I don't wish to rehash what has been now more than two decades of political discourse on this. I just wanted to take the opportunity to say that on this day and always, we remember. We remember those whose uh, only offense to those enemies of the West was living their life. And uh, we certainly send our thoughts and prayers to those uh, survivors and, and family members of the victims who have to uh, relive this all the time. And, and, you know, at True North, we've always taken it a bit more seriously than I think some of the other media outlets in this country, just because it was, generally speaking, a sacrifice that we thought was important to honor and continue to do so. So uh, it's always uh, risky when you start the show off on such a somber note, but nevertheless, uh, we now segue into the subjects of this show, which include overwhelmingly coverage from the last few days of the Conservative Convention. But I just want to, before we get to that, let you know that uh, if you watch this show live, we are at a new time slot right now. We are at uh, 11 a.m. Mountain Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And assuming this goes well, which you never know, this will be our new time for the foreseeable future as we also shift into a bit of a new schedule. So uh, the Andrew Lawton Show is now going to be daily, Monday to Thursday. We'll have a little bit more content to fill, but hopefully we'll rise up to the challenge, rise up to the task, and you'll enjoy it. I had the chance in Quebec City where I was covering the Conservative Convention to speak to a number of True North supporters, people who listen to this show. It was an absolute pleasure, uh, and thank you so much for all the kind words. Although I must say, I've reached a, a bit of a weird point in my life where I'm the kind, like there was this one situation where, I, I, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, where like this, this lovely, lovely, lovely young lady came up to me and, you know, she was been waiting very, very kindly and politely waiting, you know, to talk to me while I was chatting with someone else. And, you know, that person ended and I, I went over and she came up and she's like, I just want to say my mom's a huge fan of yours. And I'm like, oh, well, I think that's a compliment. It's always weird because it's like you never want someone to come up to you and be like, hey, someone I know is a fan of yours. But nevertheless, it was a lot of fun. And I enjoyed meeting everyone here. Uh, this is a bit of a turning point for the conservatives. This is uh, now the one year anniversary of Pierre Polyev being elected leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. It was the first opportunity he's had since then to really speak to conservative members and by extension to kind of set the tone for how he wants to speak to Canadians. And the one thing that I'll say that makes this not particularly newsworthy is that there wasn't anything bold that came out of this that was a departure from what Pierre Polyev has already been talking about. I I've remarked in the past that one of the things he's doing quite well compared to, say, Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer, his predecessors, is not pivot from his leadership messaging to the general campaign messaging. He's still talking about Davos. He's still talking about the CBC and the need to defund it. He's still talking about a lot of these things that were really red meat issues for his base. But he's added on top of that, of course, a bit more in the way of broadly appealing subjects like 
housing and affordability. And this uh, pervasive message in his campaigning now, the common people, common sense for the common people, the idea that working class folks across this country are not ordinary, but are extraordinary. This is something we heard from Pierre and also from his wife, Anna, who I think is very quickly emerging if she hasn't already as a standout in this field. But here's where things get interesting. It wasn't just about 3,000 members of the conservative community in Canada coming together in Quebec City. There were also a handful of liberals there, and not just like random liberals who live in the neighborhood and wanted to pop by to see what the fuss was about, but like high-ranking liberal cabinet ministers who were dispatched to Quebec City to be glorified hecklers and protesters at this event. One of them was Stephen Gilbeau, who at like... I think it was at nine o'clock or something on Saturday. We got word that he was going to be doing some press conference at 1030. And we're like, that that sounds a bit odd. And, you know, we walk out to where it's supposed to be. And I kid you not, there was like a long black stretch limo outside. And I'm like, surely this can't be how Stephen Gilbo is showing up to the conservative convention. It wasn't. I don't know who came in the stretch limo, but it wasn't Stephen Gilbo. And uh, in any event, he showed up a little while later and started speaking about how, you know, the conservatives don't have a plan for the climate. And Polyev has been the leader for a year and still doesn't have a plan for the climate. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I, I asked him a couple of questions. I mean, the first one I, I asked him was about why... Uh, Canada is the one that has to go into energy poverty and why Canadians have to when we are less than 2% of global emissions, like 1.7, 1.8 usually, and China is investing in coal and reindustrializing and ramping up production. Uh, and then a little bit later on, I, I had the opportunity in the scrum to ask him this question that shouldn't actually be a difficult one because he was the guy standing up there and saying that we need carbon taxes. We need the liberal climate plan because Canada is subject to wildfires and Canada is subject to hurricanes and extreme weather events. So I thought this was a pretty fair question. You mentioned extreme events like wildfires and hurricanes. Why has your carbon tax not stopped those things if that is the answer to these problems? The, this is this question which I've heard in the House of Commons by many Conservative Party members, including Pierre Poliev, is, is yet another example of the fundamental disbelief that you have in climate science and in science full stop. Um, we won't solve climate change overnight, and we certainly won't solve climate change with, with, with empty slogans. It's going to take years of hard work to tackle this environmental crisis, and the fact that, that you believe that somehow we can flick a switch on a wall and everything's going to be fine just shows how to, the, the total ignorance that, that you and many others have when it comes to the issue of climate change. Ooh, the total ignorance. I think he meant ignorance, but I won't hold that against him. He doesn't even look at me as he's making this accusation, by the way, but the total ignorance that I have on climate change. Well, I'm actually not ignorant to this. Now, unlike him, I am not pretending that I am an expert on this field, but I listen to the experts and I pay attention to it. And the liberals who time and time again tell us we need to tax our way out of the climate problems have failed to answer the question of why BC, which has had a carbon tax for what, 15 years now, has failed to stop wildfires with it. Why Canada, which has now had a national carbon tax for four years, has failed to stop wildfires and extreme weather events with it. And more importantly, why Canadians should bear the brunt of this. And his answer to that question, uh, which I, I won't make you suffer through it like I did, was basically that, well, you know, how can we go to China and expect them to do stuff if we're not doing it? So we need to lead by example. We need to cripple our economy to show them how it's done. Uh, and again, 
and China is laughing and profiting while Western countries twist themselves into knots to literally de-industrialize. That is the goal. That is the focal point. But it wasn't just Stephen Gilbo. Marcy Ian showed up and was touting how like 45 different feminist organizations were all descending on Quebec City and uh, they were all st there to, I, you can probably see it for yourself. I mean, there weren't actually 45 different groups. I saw like nine people outside with a banner saying they're against the patriarchy and against colonialism and all of that. But uh, Marcy Ian was there, you know, the grandmaster of this protest in some way. Uh, and then a little later on, Pablo Rodriguez came by. He used to be the heritage minister. Uh, now he's transport minister, but I didn't really have a transport question to ask him. I should have actually, knowing what I know now, that Justin Trudeau has like failed to be able to get his plane to take off from India. I could have asked him about that, but uh, we didn't know about that at the time. So I decided to ask him about this report that we spoke about a little bit last week, how C-18, the Online News Act, which is the one that's basically going to funnel money from big tech to the uh, media in Canada is going to make CBC the big winner. The story on this was that uh, experts who have analyzed this, including our friend Peter Menzies, have showed that uh, it's going to be CBC that gets the lion's share of the money that this is going to put into media. CBC, which is already a taxpayer-funded, heavily subsidized outlet to the tune of $1.2, $1.3 billion a year, and they're going to get an additional subsidy from big tech. So I asked Pablo Rodriguez about this. The, the former vice chair of the CRTC said that it's the CBC that's going to get the lion's share of any money given under the Online News Act. So how is that supporting independent media creators in Canada when it's just increasing an already very generous uh, subsidy that the CBC gets from the government? Well, we based our bill on what we saw in Australia and we tweaked it and I think we made it better. Uh, but if you look at Australia, proportionally, it's all the, the small media that got more than the rest. But that's not what experts are saying in Canada will happen. They're saying CBC will get even more money of that. Those are against the bill. But when you speak to the people in Australia and we brought some of their experts. But here, these are Canadian and, experts. And they went to the committees. It's the same structure. And they went to the committees and they said proportionally all the small media got more. Okay, so it's Australian experts. and but, but what about the Canadian? No, 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 no. Let's listen to the Australian experts. So uh, it's odd how the Canadian experts who know the Canadian situation are not actually the folks that uh, we should be listening to here. It's the Australian ones, which very conveniently the Liberals flew all the way into Australia or maybe they zoomed in, I can't remember, uh, to align with stuff the government wants to do. A little bit funny how that works out. But nevertheless, it's a little bit odd to me that we have a conservative convention where thousands of conservatives from across the country are going. And uh, then we have the big question here on uh, liberals' minds, which is, hmm, how can we gate crash? Now, look, uh, maybe conservatives throw a better party than liberals. I, I don't actually don't know. I think liberals might actually know how to party pretty well. But what is it that they wanted there? Now, I actually have been trying to figure this out. I've been trying to figure out how it ended up that the liberal ministers were going to be at the conservative convention. And I found uh, through access to information a copy of a video of Justin Trudeau uh, briefing ministers Gilbo and Rodriguez before sending them out. Take a look. I want you at every Horns and every Russell event for the next 36 hours. Obviously, Bob goes to the Russell events and John the Horns. You know, Bob. John, we're making a serious point here. We're trying to turn public opinion. So no rough housing, no tearing down signs, no excessive flapping of the wings. 
Don't lie about what you do in there. Don't heckle. If you get the chance, you ask humbly and respectfully, are you too chicken to debate the full field? On a personal note, thanks for, you know. Okay, sorry, I might have been mistaken. I, uh, very similar, though. Uh, I, and to be honest, Rodriguez and Gilbo probably could have done the uh, chicken suit, make some new original Canadian content for us all. Uh, but that's basically it. They became the, you know, mascots, the hecklers, the paid uh, protesters, the Asians provocateur, uh, for no apparent reason, just showing up to protest. Now, uh, listen, I had some people at the convention asking me, like, what on earth is Gilbo doing here? I said, you know, would you rather him here or in Ottawa? And everyone said, you know what? Yeah, the more time he's spending not legislating the better things are for the country but it was really a fascinating thing and not exactly the sign of a party that is feeling confident about his position the backdrop for all of this is that right now the liberals are just plummeting in the polls the liberals are pulling in like 24 25 percent uh the abacus poll last week had the conservatives at 40 percent uh, and well yes polling is not at all a perfect thing that we should all expect to predict future outcomes uh polling has been very consistently showing the conservatives riding high and it's telling that the liberals have not managed to adapt to this uh, this was pablo rodriguez's response to pierre polyev's hour-long speech the bigger picture here, though, what was your takeaway from the speech? And it was long. It was long. It was a very long speech uh, with not much new, uh, quite a traditional, I would say, Republican, you know, far right speech uh, where, where he confirmed that he's going to cut that. We know that he's going to cut a lot. Uh, we don't know where. Like, is it going to be the seniors, dental care? Um, we don't know. Uh, we have hoped that he had the courage to say where he was going to cut. Uh, but at least we know that he's going to cut and uh, we'll see. Now, the one thing, and I, I actually wish the cameras had captured this when they were doing that Pablo Rodriguez event, but if you, I, I don't know if it's possible to put up a still of that or not. If, if not, it's, it's no big deal. But if you were to like stare at Pablo Rodriguez and turn to the right, you'd see the, the window of the building there. Right inside that window, there was a two and like 20 minute long lineup for people to see Pierre Polyev and get a picture with him. After Pierre Polyev spoke, he went and started taking pictures with anyone and everyone who came by. And, and that went for like almost two and a half hours after he finished speaking. So uh, Pablo Rodriguez is up there saying, oh yeah, you know, the conservatives are far right. And then you look over and there are literally thousands of people that were like so enamored by what Pierre Polyev was saying and doing that they wanted to get a picture with him. Now, obviously a bit of a sample bias there. Those people are delegates or attendees of a conservative convention. But talk about the contrast. The liberals are still using the same talking points they've always used when Polyev is riding high. I mean, look, if he's the far right guy, what does that say about the 40% of Canadians, many of whom may have been previous liberal voters, that are saying they would cast their ballot with that guy. Now, uh, the next day, Rodriguez came back and he was doing like, they they don't like that uh, Key and Bexty and Rebel News and True North were able to ask him questions. So when he came back, they did this like series of one-on-one -on -one interviews 
uh, where they would just like with French outlets do a one-on-one -on -one and no scrumming, which is when other people jump in. And the thing about it that I found interesting is afterwards, I like, you know, just like try to throw a question at him. And then he was walking away and his press secretary tried to like hold me back under the, oh, why, why don't you give me your number and we'll arrange an interview as he's walking away. And I'm like, I'm not falling for this one. So like we ran after him and we, we didn't really get anything, anything good out of it. But I, I did ask him to try to get an answer. What is it about the speech that was far right? And he was like, oh, you know, cuts. It's, it's about cuts. And then, you know, what is it about, you know, Canadians that support Pierre Polyev that you would uh, say and he basically uh, just pivoted to abortion like this is the only thing the liberals have right now is this like panic that oh uh, conservatives are pro-life and, and that it's not working it absolutely is not working. And when you look at what Canadians are seeing right now, and, and by the way, like it was difficult to not get caught up in the enthusiasm and excitement, which is true of any party convention. I mean, maybe the NDP conventions are a little bit more lethargic, but you're seeing people that are out there that are excited and enthusiastic. But this was the first time in, I'd say, eight years that I've seen a level of enthusiasm from conservative Canadians. Like conservative Canadians tolerated Andrew Scheer's leadership. They tolerated Aaron O'Toole's leadership. They've had good moments, but this was the first time there was really an electricity where people seem to feel, yeah, th this is it. We've got this. Now, that doesn't mean they can't blow it. Conservatives have uh, certainly blown their fair share of elections, but they're feeling right now like they're over the target, which is, I think, a very, very different place for them to be in. And, and you can just see some of the reactions online. Uh, for example, uh, Polyev was on a WestJet flight from uh, Quebec City to Calgary, uh, which apparently... WestJet only added this flight to help like conservative delegates get out of Quebec City without having to connect. I had to connect in Toronto yesterday and it was terrible because I had to like run into Jagmeet Singh at Pearson Airport. So uh, direct flights are always better. And because it was like either almost all or all conservative delegates, they let Polyev address the plane uh, and he gave what was a decent little like pep talk. Uh, you can see here. Everyone. Pierre Polyev, happy to join you for a wonderful West Stretch flight back to my hometown of Calgary. Who's ready for a home you can afford? Who's ready for some common sense? Who's ready to give a big thank you to the WestJet pilots and crew? This is your captain warning, a little bit of turbulence. But it will only last about two years. <laughs> and when time will have a totally new crew and pilot in charge of the plane, we'll pierce through the storm, safely land in our home, the country we know and love, your home, my home, our home. Let's bring it home. And I only share that to contextualize how unhinged the like anti-WestJet tweets were after the fact. You had people saying like, oh, WestJet needs to be held to account. This is unacceptable. And I'm like, you know what? With all the nonsense that you have to see and listen to when you get on a plane, I, I don't think, you know, a conservative leader or any politician speaking for, you know, 58 seconds or whatever it is in front of a friendly crowd is the most offensive or egregious thing there. But, but the unhinged reaction to what happened at the convention 
is par for the course. One of the most notable developments was the passage of uh, these two motions, these policy resolutions that are taking aim at gender ideology. One of them says the Conservatives are against sex changes for kids. Again, a pretty reasonable mainstream position you'd expect. And the other is a conservative uh, party believes in the protection of single-sex spaces. So the conservatives believe that a woman is a female person. Shouldn't be controversial, but apparently it is. But the level of nastiness that these resolutions have elicited from people has been quite astonishing. There was this uh, tweet from Sherry DeNovo, a former Ontario provincial parliamentarian who said, uh, no LGBTQ person should ever vote conservative after the attack on all of us at their convention. First, they came for the trans as they did in the 1930s. Now, I know a little bit about the history of the 1930s and 1940s, and I do not believe we could say that that was an attack on trans people first and foremost. So shame on you for trying to inject your own political views into an awful chapter in history. And I'm not saying that, you know, people who were sexual minorities were not affected by the Nazis, but again, that was not... First and foremost, the Holocaust was not first and foremost over pronouns. And it's disgusting for you to try to claim that it is in some roundabout way. Uh, you have uh, Laurel Collins here, a liberal MP, who says the rising hate directed at trans people is terrifying. And conservative leaders are stoking this hate with dangerous discriminatory policies. And then there's like a you know 97 point plan on how conservatives are evil and the liberals are better. And then you had this story in uh, CTV. Uh, now, CTV, to its credit, shared my question to Stephen Gilbo about why carbon taxes aren't stopping wildfires. But uh, then any good favor they earned then, they lost uh, with this story here. During the Conservative Party's policy convention in Quebec City, delegates voted in favor of prohibiting medicinal or surgical interventions for transgender children under 18 as a future government policy. So they say in their framing of this that the Conservative Party is trying to deny medical care to transgender kids. No, the Conservative Party members are saying they do not believe government should facilitate sex changes for children, irreversible surgery and hormone treatments for children. That is what conservative members said. They had said nothing about denying mental health care or physical health care or pharmacare. They said, we do not want to give them irreversible treatments to change what is fundamentally a question of biology. And then you have this unhinged narrative from this that flows where people are saying this is going to kill people, people trying to pretend there is going to be a direct death toll because of what conservative delegates voted for, a position, by the way, shared by millions of non-conservative people from all faith groups of no faith group at all uh, with provinces around the country starting to talk about this. New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta to some extent. And it's going to continue from there because that is where parents are. Parents are saying, hmm, maybe we should look after our children and support them, not by going to the hills to defend sex changes for them. So uh, that's what's happening here. And obviously we've had a, a fair bit of coverage on this, but I want to go back to some of the other themes here. And I mentioned at the beginning of this show, we have a new time slot. We are uh, doing things a little bit more differently on this show than we have in the past. So uh, we thought we would introduce a new feature, which is uh, to promote every Monday, Chris Sims, who is with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, is no stranger to viewers of this show. And we're so glad she's agreed to uh, give us a little bit of her Monday. So we decided 
excited. We'd start with her today. Chris, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. So stoked to be here, Andrew. Congratulations on your new time slot. Hey, thank you. Let's uh, start off with this CBC thing. So uh, Pablo Rodriguez, who had the heritage file for uh, much of the time that C-11 and C-18 have been in the pipeline, uh, comes out and says, despite what every expert in Canada who's looked at this is saying, it's going to be the independent media outlets that are benefiting from C-18 when we know that CBC will. And we also know that independent outlets are like us who never wanted to be a part of this are being silenced as a result of C-18. Yeah, what a dog's breakfast. I think this is another example, Andrew, of this government just winging it. Like, a lot of times it seems as if they've had no prep, no research, they just do stuff because they see other people doing it, and then we all pay for it. So for folks who don't know the difference between something like C-11, which was a major censorship law, and this new C-18... Basically, this is why you can't post a link on Facebook right now for a news site, because there's a huge fight between the government and the tech bros. So for the longest time, we were kind of staying out of it because that was a fight between the government and the tech bros. It didn't necessarily affect taxpayers directly. But now <laughs> we're coming off the bench because now it turns out, spoiler alert, yeah, CBC is going to apparently been getting the lion's share of the money from said tech bros. And of course, the CBC is the government. So this is a tax. So this is where we're coming at this from. The CBC already takes $1.2, $1.3 billion from us every single year. By the way, folks, that would build you a brand new hospital with all of the equipment inside of it every single year. That's how much you're paying for the CBC. And now, lo and behold, they're going to be getting the lion's share. And you mentioned uh, Mr. Menzies. Uh, I spoke with him just last week. And this is how it's apparently going to go. It's the link volume. It's volume. It's how many links are posted on said media platforms that then translates into money, gets that cash. And of course, the CBC online in their print format has been eating the lunch of local print newspapers now for years. And they actually get a lot of links posted to their printed versions of their news stories. So guess what? They're going to be the ones benefiting the most from this new law if the tech companies cave and start paying. You know, the one thing that I, I've always said has been problematic about this government's approach to the internet file is that they're trying to muddy the waters on this. And, you know, one example, we saw a few years ago, the $600 million slush fund effectively for media outlets, which a lot of taxpayers didn't like. Now they're trying to just continue subsidizing, but saying, oh, no, 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 it's not tax dollars that's doing it. We're making these, you know, big, evil, scary tech companies do it. Uh, whereas in the CBC case, it is government that is the beneficiary. So it, it's literally a backdoor subsidy. It's the government looking at CBC and saying, oh, we'll give you an extra 50, 60 million, however much it works out to be. We'll give you this extra money without ever having to own it, without having to put it on a balance sheet, without having to get Canadians to endorse that. And it's a very backhanded uh, or underhanded, I should mm -hmm. say, uh, approach to just forcing more subsidization of CBC. Yeah, for sure. It definitely feels like a backhand to the faces of taxpayers. And people need to remember, number one, Journalists shouldn't be paid by the government, period. We don't care if you're right-wing, left-wing, space alien. A journalist is supposed to hold the powerful to account. Pretty tough to do that if you're counting on the powerful for your paycheck. That's number one. Number two, 
This is a huge waste of money. On top of the $1.2, $1.3 billion, like you said, Andrew, it's around $600 million or so on top of that for journalists outside of the CBC. When you do the math, that breaks down to about $13,000 per reporter coming from the government. And so for folks who are kind of curious, if you've never worked in journalism, do a little thought process. Imagine you're a reporter on Parliament Hill, 13 grand of your paycheck, and maybe the very existence of your job counts on that minister. How on earth are you supposed to hold him to account? Ask those tough questions like you were just a few minutes ago and shove a mic in his face. It's human nature. You're not going to be able to do that. You cannot call that game straight if you're a ref taking bets on the side. So now, lo and behold, C-18 is just another way for them to extort money, in this case from a private company, directly into government coffers that happen to be labeled CBC. So again, this is why folks need to really pay attention to this. Yeah, and you see it especially with Radio Canada. Like they won't mm. stop reporting on Pierre Polyev's pledge to defund CBC. And in their case, they're trying to figure out what it's going to mean for them. Will Radio Canada get a little bit of a carve out? And there's a bit of a dispute even within the conservatives about this. Like Quebec conservative MPs are saying, oh no, Radio Canada is fine. Pierre Polyev himself hasn't said that, but it is interesting. And you're right. These journalists who are writing about their own future and their own livelihood here and not really acknowledging that that's what they're doing. And I think it's the same with this bailout as well. You're right. Yeah, they have to at least they should declare at the very least. They should declare right up front that either, you know, whatever company it is, company ABC or reporter job this is subsidized by the state, is subsidized by the government. This reporter is counting with their paycheck on this government's largesse. Otherwise, how are you supposed to cover that straight? And we also need to keep in mind that this is a massive waste of money. And it also, when combined with the government paying journalists, when combined with something like C-11, which is a form of online censorship, we are in really uncharted territory here when it comes to free expression and a free press here in Canada. Uh, one other issue I, I wanted to bring up, not the same in terms of dollar value, but again, when we're talking about government waste, there is a bit of a connection here. Uh, this came from your colleague, Ryan Thorpe, over at yeah. the CTF this morning. Apparently, the federal government has spent $420,000 since 2018 subsidizing edible crickets. What on earth is going on? It's, I'm sorry, I just find that so gross. I mean, like, if, you, if you're into eating crickets, anybody watching this, power to you. Go right ahead. I just like, <laughs> you probably don't like me eating beef or whatever it is your thing is. So, yes, this is a huge waste of money. It's over $400,000. And this is all that we've seen so far. There's probably plenty below the surface that we're not aware of. $400,000 since 2018. And what this is, is it's basically corporate welfare. Okay, being handed out to what they call cricket farms. And I've seen videos of these things, Andrew. They're like these massive buildings, and I can just imagine the noise. And they're all in these little <laughs> habitats, right? And you turn them into paste. Now, I have to be clear. They've been putting crickets and bugs and stuff into pet food for years, okay? It's a high-protein thing. You know, you're putting it into kibble. Who cares? You know, if you do care, whatever. But it's going into pet food. This is different, this is $400,000 to turn crickets into powder and paste and stuff so humans can eat it. Again, if you want to do that and you want to make a company doing that, give her. 
but don't take dollars from taxpayers. We're opposed to corporate welfare. And this was definitely something that jumped out at us. But no, it isn't just paste. I was reading from the uh, report over at taxpayer.com that a portion of it has been earmarked for cricket steaks, sausages, and falafels. Now, I have not seen a cricket steak, a cricket sausage. I could kind of imagine a cricket falafel, but it's like a falafel's already vegetarian. Like, wh why, why do you need crick peas instead of chickpeas in falafel? <laughs> vegetarian though if you make yeah, it yeah you're right you're, you're 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 making it you're making it worse you're like adding you're adding something in it that like even the vegans wouldn't have cared uh, this, about this is one of the funny little secrets just to let people in on it when they're talking about you know cows and horses because i was raised around cows and horses being you know herbivores actually they eat a lot of bugs like so many bugs on their grass that they're kind of omnivorous but yeah all this is to say i think what they do and this is just me winging it I think they take the paste and they shape it into a steak and then they must like, I don't know, use some sort of binder in order to keep it looking like a steak shape. I will say, Andrew, uh, I sent your producer this and maybe we can chat about it next time. Um, this isn't just about product producing food. I don't know how much money we spent on this, but last year my kid was sent home from public elementary school in British Columbia with four pages of cricket propaganda for him to fill out as an assignment. And it was chatting about this massive grocery store chain, the same one we gave millions of dollars to to pay for refrigerators, uh, putting cricket powder and cricket paste on the shelves and why this is the wave of the future for farming. And actually super funny how AI is helping to raise these crickets like it pushed all my buttons <laughs> it's like it's like they've literally just like they've taken like the wef agenda for the year and they took like every buzzword and came up with something like let's take crickets and throw in ai and we'll throw in censorship and find like a battery powered vehicle and we'll just like it's the battery powered uh cricket plant with the recipes made up by ai <laughs> it makes them happy klaus schwab comes out and you will eat the bugs <laughs> they, they could have made it so that the car tax goes up to <laughs> in conjunction with building these barns but really i want to know and i put in fois on this stuff and it's super hard to get information out of the government uh ryan thorpe our investigative journalist is brilliant at this way smarter than me on that stuff and so i've sent him i sent him a screenshot from when i was so mad i took a picture of it with my phone so we're going to find out how much money we spent on getting this and this was in the public school curriculum of elementary school in bc wow. for folks watching i would be super curious if your kid was sent home with cricket propaganda we'd like to know too yeah i would also like get very nervous if they put falafel in the school cafeteria there as well given that we know there's like apparently a new recipe for it well uh chris sims from the canadian taxpayers federation we will see you next monday read your labels folks thanks <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks for that chris uh we had the opportunity to sit down with a bunch of interesting people at the conservative convention in quebec city spoke to a couple of mps and also a couple of people who are part of the conservative movement uh, one of them was roman babber the last time i sat down with this gentleman he was running for the leadership of the conservative party of canada after having served a term as a member of provincial parliament in Ontario, first as a progressive conservative and later, as we discussed in that interview, as an independent. And the uh, trajectory there was quite shameful. It was for standing up at its core for freedom, the freedom of Ontarians against uh, restrictions and mandates. And it's a bit interesting now how things shake out. You weren't successful in the, the leadership race, but you are now the conservative candidate 
in York Center. Roman Baber, it, it's good to talk to you. Let's just start right out of the gate. When you and I sat down during the leadership race, I asked you if you weren't successful, if you would be seeking a, a seat federally. And your answer was pretty much no at the time. You, you really were leaning against it, it sounded like, or, or at the very least uncertainty. So, so what changed? What made you want to get back in? Well, there was a little bit of uncertainty at the time, but I think that my nomination speaks volumes to the fact that when Pierre Polyev talks about freedom of speech and making Canada the freest country in the world, he means business. So I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm very energized for the future of our party and our country. And uh, I, look, I can't wait for the next federal election. I never wanted to win an election this badly, Andrew. And I'm optimistic about success. When you were ejected from, from caucus in Ontario, and I, I don't want to relitigate the past, but was there a part of you that thought that was kind of the end of, of your political career, just given the party system? And, and you fast forward to now where you are representing the Conservatives in, in York Centre. It's certainly, I think, a vindication for you that what you were saying was not uh, you know, outside of, of political discourse. But I'm curious how your journey has been in that regard. Of course, it's been a very challenging couple of years. Nevertheless, we're here now in Quebec with 3,000 energized conservatives looking forward to winning the next election and putting our country back on the right path. And so, again, as I said, I'm, I'm very gratified to, to Pierre and, and the management team and York Center voters for, for welcoming me back, uh, representing conservative ideals and, and fighting for affordability, for freedom, and uh, everything that our party stood for. I'm very excited. York Centre is a very challenging riding. I mean, federally, the Conservatives have, have held it once in, in recent memory, and that was when Stephen Harper won his majority. Provincially, you were able to uh, get it in, in 2018. But, but what is it that's needed to get that riding back for the Conservatives? Well, I think after eight years of Justin Trudeau, um, Canadians uh, feel that he's out of touch and they're out of money. And that includes many York Centre residents. Um, I'm very confident that Pierre's message is resonating with York Center, um, and I, I hear it everywhere I go. During my nomination, I, uh, I spoke to countless conservative and non-conservative members, and the feeling is that we desperately need a change. Um, York Center is located in North Toronto. Uh, housing's unaffordable, pricing's unaffordable, food's unaffordable, and um, I, I think that uh, York Center and uh, the country as a whole are ready to embrace change. And that means electing Pierre Polyev as our next prime minister in a strong conservative majority. The conservatives have gone through in the last few years some pretty significant changes. I mean, in the span of uh, just a few years, you've had three leaders, uh, I mean, interim leaders on top of that. But you've had Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole, uh, now Pierre Polyev. You've had two unsuccessful elections in, in 2019 and in 2021. Uh, and both of which the Conservatives had the popular vote, but as we know, that and a couple of dollars gets, well, actually a couple of dollars doesn't get you anything now. But uh, the, the thing is, uh, the Conservatives have gone down this road before where Justin Trudeau is dealing with popularity issues, but the Conservatives have still lost. So why do you think it's going to be different this time? What is it you see in the party or in Pierre Polyev that makes you think they can do it this time? I think, uh, first of all, we have to have the courage to be ourselves. And without question, uh, Pierre has articulated a vision for the Conservative Party that is resonating with Canadians. And that means that we should not be afraid to, to speak about issues such as the carbon tax, something that the former leader shied away from. Uh, 
with respect, all the carbon tax does is compound on, on misery and price. And so I look forward to axing the tax. Um, also, it's clear that Pierre's message is resonating with young Canadians. You know, an average detached house in the 416 is $1.6 million. It's an unthinkable figure. York Centre is not much behind. And um, the sense of hope that the party is now offering young people that we can get out of this mess by building, by firing the gatekeepers, by uh, ensuring that we zone transit stations appropriately for high density, uh, those are resonating with Canadians. And, and finally, Pierre's message of, of freedom, the fact that uh, we respect individual choice and, and we also respect uh, Canada's integrity in being free from foreign interference. I think that all of those resonate with Canadians, which will lead to electoral success. During the leadership race, you were uh, one of the only candidates that uh, took a position that's kind of counter to where the Conservatives have historically been on supply management and that you were very pro-consumer on that. Now, that's not the position that the party has right now, and that's not Pierre's position. Uh, is that a, an issue that you would do something about kind of using your own autonomy as an MP if elected? Look, I, I think that it's important that we focus on affordability, right? Uh, life is truly unaffordable. And that means generally by removing gatekeepers. Uh, at the same time, um, I, I respect the will of the membership. And uh, Pierre has a resounding mandate uh, given to him by the leadership, uh, by the membership. And my thinking is that we now need to conceive as many ways possible. And, and probably the best way, uh, in addition to axing the tax, and reducing income tax there by making uh, growing Canadian paychecks is, is to encourage federal competition. You know, the other day we saw that Rogers is now back in court uh, fighting for uh, increase in tariffs. This is after Philippe Champagne said that prices after the merger are going to go down. Yeah. And obviously, surprise. So um, encouraging competition in, in airlines, in in banking and telecom, uh, that is probably the best way to go. And, and I'm glad that the Conservative Party is looking in that direction. There was a, a brief period where you were a bit of a pariah in Ontario politics. And I, I just wondered now that we kind of take a forward looking approach here, how have you felt by the Conservative community that you're now a part of federally? Um, I've, I've been embraced and, and I'm back with my party uh, back home. And I am uh, ecstatic for the future of our party and our country. You know, it's been uh, a very difficult few years, Andrew, for, for many people, and uh, including myself. But um, we are resolute. And we have to remain positive and optimistic uh, about the resiliency and the character of Canadians. Trust Canadians uh, to, to um, welcome our message of hope and uh, turn this country around. York Center Conservative candidate Roman Babber. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you, Andrew. But I want to say about Roman Babber, when he was first running provincially, I, I didn't know him, I knew of him. And when he was first elected, I never heard anything from him that I, I would have said was all that impressive or unique. And in fact, I had always, I don't want to say written him off, but I'd always viewed him as being one of the more moderate members of the progressive conservative party in Ontario. And uh, maybe he is, or maybe he isn't. I, I'm fully, fully prepared to admit that I, I might've taken too simplistic a view, but when he stood up to Doug Ford, 
and spoke out against lockdowns. And when he spoke out against restrictions, he did so at tremendous personal risk because he basically ended at the time his political career. He became an independent and it's virtually impossible, not impossible as we learned in 2022 to win election as an independent, but very, very difficult. And he took the principled position, the principled stand and uh, had a tremendous risk and burden that he took up as a result. And when he ran for the leadership of the conservatives, I I never thought he was going to win, but I thought he had deserved a a place to be there. And, And the fact that he's being welcomed into a mainstream political party, once again, I think is tremendously valuable. And I'm And I'm so pleased to say that I was wrong about him because we do need people who are courageous in politics. And Roman Babber absolutely is one of those people, even if you disagree or agree with him on uh, particular issues. So he was there when it counted. And that's more than can be said for a lot of other politicians, certainly in Ontario. That does it for us. We will be back tomorrow in our new time slot, 1 p.m. Eastern or 11 a.m. Mountain. That means uh, 2 p.m. Atlantic, 2.30 p.m. Newfoundland. It is noon Central and... Uh, that, just to finish the whole uh, landscape of Canadian time zones here, it is uh, an early 10 a.m. for those of you in British Columbia. And I met many of you in Quebec City this past weekend. So thank you again for all your support. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.